Hello, podcast listeners. I am Jared Pickney, and today's episode is with Judge Dan Stidham, who joins us to talk about his new book, The Harvest of Innocence. In Judge Stidham's book, he talks about his experience working as a defense attorney for Jesse Miss Kelly, one of the three teenagers who was accused of brutally murdering three young children in West Memphis in 1993. In this episode, Sidham talks about the toll that this case took on his own family, the unfortunate reality of false confessions, and why he continues to be so passionate about fighting for Jesse and Miss Kelly's innocence. With that, here's today's episode with Judge Dan Sidham. Dan Sidham, welcome back to the podcast. Well, thank you uh, for having me. Congratulations to you. I mean, I know that you've been working on this book, A Harvest of Innocence, for how long? Um, ever since it happened, actually, I've been keeping memos and taking notes and of course I have my file back and, um, but working on it fervently since, um, June of 2014. Wow. For those who aren't familiar with the story, and I'm surprised how many people that I still meet, they just aren't familiar with it because a lot's happened. A lot of years have gone by. There's some people that just did not live in this area or they were just younger so they didn't watch, you know, obviously their parents were protecting them from this story when they were young. And so right. I, I know we're on a little bit of limited time here because you're about to be doing a book signing. Um, but can you recap for those who are listening to this, you know, in five to seven minutes, whatever it may be, this story, how would you sum up kind of what happened? What's, what's kind of the bare bones? What do they need to know about this story? Well, the book, first of all, the threshold issue would be the book was written not about the case mm-hmm. in so much as it was my memoirs about the case. Yes. So um, you said you were about halfway through it. You yes. probably noticed that I didn't even talk about the mm-hmm. Eccles and Baldwin trial because mm-hmm. I wasn't involved in that. Sure. Um, so um, I... Once we settled on a nonlinear narrative where we weren't going to go, just this happened, then this happened, yep. then this happened. Um, I, I tell people to think about the, the movie Titanic or um, the first and second, or excuse me, first and third seasons of True Detective on HBO. Mm-hmm. It's the older police officers looking back at the younger police officers when 30 mm-hmm. years earlier, 20 years earlier, whatever it was. And um, so it was, um, that's, once we settled on that, everything just gelled. I mean, uh, and the assumption we made, and perhaps incorrectly, uh, is that people who are going to be attracted to the book um, uh, have probably already seen the four documentaries Mm -hmm. and the feature film, which was not based on truth and fact. Um, but, But that was our premise, so... One of the things that I did is on my website, uh, danstidham.com, is I put a very detailed uh, timeline of the case so that people could see how it progressed. Uh, that's helpful. The, uh, so, but it, it didn't take up any book space. Sure. Um, yep. And that's also why we don't have an index, because every time it got reformatted to put it into a different uh, format, um all the page numbers were different, and it's, I, I spent a week trying to put one together, and every time I would, I'd spend another week trying to redo it. And so uh, we had a discussion, and Tom and I did, and, and um, 
uh, we just decided to abandon it. Um, felt like it was unnecessary. Um, so, um, um, the goals of, of the book, um, is to not retell the story because the yeah. story's been out there for 30 years. Yes. You can find the story for sure. You can. And, and, um, some people have told me they've rewatched, uh, the documentaries before they, um, read the book or in preparation while they were waiting for Amazon to send the book. Yep. And as and someone who is actually, you're in the documentary, I guess you would recommend it. Like you, you thought it was done well, represents the case well. Absolutely. The, the three HBO documentaries um, caught it from its inception to the very end with the Alfred plea and three different documentary, documentaries, Paragold, Paragold. Paragold Lost. <laughs> uh, we don't want to have one of those. <laughs> no, Paradise Lost, uh, one, two, and three. And then Peter Jackson, Amy Berg, and Fran Walsh uh, produced a film, uh, which they were actually filming and editing when the Alfred plea suddenly came about. I've never watched it. It's called West of Memphis. And it's it kind of condenses it all into a two-and-a-half-hour format instead of spending an entire weekend watching three documentaries. You could actually watch West of Memphis. Uh, but I recommend all of them because they all have their, 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 their factual, straightforward. And um, if it wasn't for those three HBO documentaries, I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you today. Yeah. Well, when I, you know, like I said, I'm halfway through the book and the tone, and I mean this in a, in a good sense, the tone to me is I can, I can sense in you as you write it still, um, for a lack of better phrase, almost what feels like at times a righteous anger. Yes. You know, like a, there's, there's still a lot of passion. You should have seen the first draft. <laughs> yeah. You didn't hold, you did not hold back at all. And, and, uh, I'm curious, like, I'm, you talk about this in the book, but for those that have not read it yet, why so much anger? Like, why so much passion still to this day around this case? Well, in all honesty, I should have won the case straight up at trial. But the judge, the trial judge, would not let my experts testify. And um, and then he said they weren't qualified. And then in the next trials, a few weeks later, he let a Ohio uh, retired uh, police officer with a mail order PhD where you literally just send them the money and they send you the, the diploma. Uh, never stepped foot on the campus. Uh, he qualified as a expert in the occult um and Burnett's exact words Judge Burnett's exact words were even a third grader can be an expert um if um they can help the jury understand certain issues and I'm I'm thinking why is a guy with a legitimate PhD uh, from Cal Berkeley yeah. not a, a you know a, an expert witness because yeah. he knew that he gutted our case. He gutted our defense. Where did all of that come from? You talk about in here a lot the satanic panic, which was huge, by the way. Like yeah. I remember in in ninety three, um, I was ten, and I can remember because I grew up in the church. Don't let your kids go trick or treating. You talk about that in here. Yeah. Don't let your kids go trick or treating. Uh, you know the devil's behind every single 
tree. Uh, I remember us having even a, a, a revival, good old you know Southern Baptist revival around this time this happened, and there was a, a guy coming to the revival who was a student at Marmaduke who wore all black. And I can remember there being a fear because it was around the time of all of this. Yeah. And everyone was terrified. Like, that guy looks like Damien Eccles. Like, where did that come from? Like, where did that story originate that, that these kids were, and they were pretty much kids. How was Jesse Miss Kelly? He was the they oldest, were, right? for lack of a better word or phrase, the outsiders of the community because they were gothic. Okay. Uh, and I say they, Jesse Miss Kelly wasn't. Um, was Jason? And Jason wore Not heavy really, metal right. T-shirts, yeah. but nothing, you know, he wasn't as, you know, Damien wore every everywhere he went. He was all black. Uh, all black, and in the middle of the summer when it's 100 degrees and 100% humidity, he'd wear a black trench coat. Did he ever come out and say, I'm a Satanist? He proclaimed himself to be a Wiccan. Okay, which he still does to this day, I think. I, I think so. Yeah. Um, and people don't understand what Wicca right. is and, and the difference between a, uh, a black witch and a white witch and all the other. Uh, I've never studied it, so I'm just yeah. giving an overview of what I do know. But it's it's basically they they worship nature. Yeah. Um, and, but uh, the narrative was these kids are worshiping Satan and they sacrifice these kids to the devil. That was the... That was the um, they were interviewing Damien within 48 hours, the body's being found. Yeah. So tell people, and you talk about this a lot in the book, because it is about, like you said, your memoir of your experience with Jesse Miss Kelly. You get this call, and I, you've been on the podcast before, we talked about a little bit of this, and, and, but it just refreshed my memory, and you dive a little deeper into it, is you get this call from Judge Goodson, who yeah. is my neighbor, and says, hey, you want this case? And your dad's like, you don't need to take this case. you know. And other people are probably like, you're crazy, but you're, you're 30 which seems crazy to me now because now I'm 40. I'm like, at the time, like, I'm looking back, I'm 30 so young. Like, you're new to all of this. Like, if you had you ever worked, I can't remember if you said this or not, you probably did in the book. Had you worked a murder case at that point? I had been involved <clears throat> in several. Uh, I did one in law school. Okay. Um, that I did a lot of the investigation on, um, but I didn't participate in the trial itself. Uh, I watched portions of it. Um, the guy was guilty, um, and we were just trying to avoid the death penalty. Um, and um, I, I, there's a chapter devoted in the book at the very beginning, I think, maybe the second chapter uh, of me going to the jail and meeting him for the first time. Uh-huh. And, um, um, and uh, my life became intertwined with his as his life became intertwined with Damien because he taught um, – uh, Damien Buddhism, and uh, which is not really a religion. It's a, sure. it's a basically a psychology, a different yeah. form of psychology. Yeah. And um, and then when they were married, they got married by by a Buddhist priest and mm-hmm. his wife. So, mm-hmm. um, and you know, the, Arkansas is a small place, and you know, so everybody knows everybody for the most part, but. But um, um, the panic was was palpable, and and you could cut it with a knife, and you know, like the humidity. It just, it just that whole summer was just horrible. People and were terrified. Like, were they afraid of like someone else is going to kill our kids? Oh yeah, absolutely. So and that's what y'all are like. You got to get somebody. Somebody's got to get locked away, so we can get back to life. That's as right. We know that's, it that's feel exactly, safe again. Exactly. Yeah, that's the whole point. Um, Durkheim's theory. 
Um, and this is a sociologist coming out of me, um, Durkheim's theory on social panic and hysteria is that uh, the community wants a quick result so that they don't uh, have to fear uh, for themselves or their children or families anymore and that they want to get everything back to normal. That's what the Salem Witch Trials was all about. Mm. And ironically, it was um, uh, 300 years later, almost to the day that the West Memphis Witch Trials began. Um, but... Um, it, uh, I so I, I don't really delve into, you know. I, obviously, I talk about the results of the mm-hmm. trial, but the the book is basically me looking back at my younger self. Mm-hmm. My daughter Catherine is uh, twenty nine or thirty, and she's been practicing law about four times, so she's never had a jury trial. So it'd be like yeah. her, and I and I. To me, she's a kid because she's my kid. Yes, but um, it, it's it's just hard to imagine. But uh, oh, I, yeah, I can't. You do a great job of letting us into the what it was like. Uh, you were very descriptive, and I think you were you did a great job of of yeah, like kind of letting us into man, like here's what it was like to be in the situation that really seemed somewhat impossible. Well, the police made the up their mind immediately that it was Eccles. And then they brought in Baldwin because he was Eccles' best friend. And then they found um, my guy who really didn't run around with Damien and Jason. Yeah, how did he ever even come about? Like, how did he get pulled Um, into the picture? They started rounding up anybody who had ever associated with um, Eccles and Baldwin. So they just go knock on Jesse's door? as a a lot. I mean, they, they're knocking on all these doors, and Jesse was just happened to be one of the doors they knocked on? Yeah, they went to the house, uh, knocked on the door, and he was a couple of trailers down uh, babysitting uh, someone's kid. And the police said, hey, we need to talk to you. And um, and they went to the place where his dad works and talked about the reward money and if there's anything Jesse could say to help him. That so at that point, he's not a suspect necessarily. He's just like... We're just trying to find out if he knows anything. Baiting the trap. That's what they were doing. And um, How did they end up getting him to the jail? uh, He just got in the police car with the officer, um, went down to the station, went through the first uh, interview to get some background information. How did he get get to the jail? Like, how do you, like, is there some, because this is just my ignorance, and I can't remember if you talked about this or not. Like, can... I mean, he wasn't arrested at that point. Oh, he was arrested immediately after he gave his statement. So he gave a statement there at the trailer park. No, at the at the police station. Okay, but what? How did they get? Him? So you can just take anybody in for questions at the police station. And just say, "Hey, you want to come with us?" Well, I'm glad you brought that up because there were two laws in effect in Arkansas at that time, and there were bright line uh, rule laws that if you violate them in any way, then all that evidence gets thrown out. And one of them was, um, before you take anybody to the police station for questioning, you are obligated as an officer to advise them that they don't have to accompany you to the station. You can refuse to, to go. And that didn't happen. The officer He just assumed it. he had to go. He, he, yeah, he was a police officer, and they were talking about reward money. So um, uh, while They're dirt he, poor. Then they're dirt poor. That's exactly right. So 
for those who haven't read the book yet or aren't familiar with the story enough, they might, you know, hear, okay, Jesse Miss Kelly, this kid said he saw the murders. Why would anybody ever say such a thing? Like, unless they actually saw it. Why did, and you talk about this in the book, but why did Jesse ever say, I saw this happen? I saw Damien Echoes and Jason Baldwin it was, kill these kids. He's been there since about 9 a.m., and it was getting dark. So it was getting late in, in the day. Uh, they gave They're him, talking to him all day? All day. All day. No confession yet at that point. Um, they told him, um, that ironically, they, they went and found his dad again and said, we'd like to do a polygraph on your son, but we need your consent since he's only 17. But they didn't get the parental consent for the um, Miranda warnings, which is required by law. And if you don't get it, the evidence is all thrown out. Wow. Automatic. So we had them on two different issues that they didn't follow the law. And so um, um, when Fogelman, the deputy prosecutor from uh, Crittenden County, got over there and read the transcript of the, of the first part of the confession, he said, I mean, I wasn't there, but I, I assumed that he had a conversation mm-hmm with uh, the officer saying, uh, you know this didn't happen at 9 o'clock in the morning. You know this didn't happen at noon. The kids were last seen riding their bicycles at 6.30 p.m. in front of the truck stop Mm -hmm. um, on the service road. They didn't skip school that day. Uh, Jason Baldwin was in school that day. Mm -hmm. So it was just all these impossibilities. Mm -hmm. So he sent them back into the room to do a get get another statement. And when Gitchell walks in, he says, now, Jesse, you told me earlier this happened at uh, five or six. It was at five or six or seven or eight. And he said seven or eight. And, and that was enough. That was enough. So um, how long did it take you before you, or how long did it take, yeah, before you started realizing something's up here? About 90 days. Okay. So first 90 days, you're still like, I don't know. He could have been there. Well, I'm just here to learn the facts. You know, at that point, uh, the phenomena of false confessions was, was in its infancy. And um, uh, it's hard for people to understand just how um, easy it is to elicit a false confession, especially from someone who's mentally handicapped. How easy is that? Like how, when you say it, it happens, like this isn't a one-time event. Like we have other examples of this happening, right? Oh, we do. Absolutely. Uh, since the Innocence Project started their uh, DNA testing for inmates, um, they've exonerated over 300 people, and a third of those people gave false confessions. Wow. So we've been executing um, uh, innocent people. And a lot decades. of those have, like, they're mentally handicapped. I mean, just statistically, we are. And, uh, and, and yes, most of those people could be considered um, uh, mentally handicapped. Wow. There, there's even cases involving um, uh, college students who've cracked under the pressure. And I go through the different types of um, false confessions uh, in the book, and and uh, people can read the difference, but Jesse's was a coerced, compliant confession, as I recall. 
And that's where um, you know what you're saying is not true, but you want to get the heck out of the situation that you're in. You want to go home. You want to go see your dad. And But these cops will not leave you alone. It's You've been there all day. They've been, you know, scaring him with pictures of one of the bodies. Uh, just, I mean. Electric chair. Uh, threatened to, said he was going to die in the electric chair, even though we, that was not a form of capital punishment in Arkansas at that time. And uh, that scared him to death. And so he decided. In if his, I tell them these guys or tell them what they want to hear, then I don't have to die. Well, they told him he could go home if, if he just told them what they wanted to hear. So then they, even though they had the ability to completely videotape this thing, the whole thing from the beginning to the end, they turn on an audio tape recorder and record it, and he, Jesse can't get it right still. He still says they were tied up with a brown rope when they weren't. It was, it was shoelaces, their own shoelaces. Um, uh, he, he got everything incorrect. And what they should have done, uh, what a real highly trained police officer would have done, is take Mr. Miss Kelly to the crime scene and say, point out where all this stuff happened. And he wouldn't have been able to do it unless they went over there and said, right here, yeah. right here, right here. So um, um, it's, he was just parroting it back. If he and, would have been proven innocent, would, uh, would there still have been a trial for Jason and Damien? doubt it huh well well i'm essentially and, and that's one of the ironies of, of the book um and I, I, I don't want to spoil it for those who haven't read it but uh, they applied a tremendous amount of pressure on jesse to testify against the other two we didn't put him on the stand because we knew that he couldn't mm-hmm. sustain. Yeah, you said uh, a lot of times you try to have a conversation with him, and it's just yes or no. Yeah, he, he couldn't even hardly carry on a conversation with you. Complete a narrative about what happened, and if you're a witness to uh, a violent murder of three eight-year-old kids, you're going to remember every detail. Uh, yeah, uh, you'll remember uh, something. Uh, but he even got the the kid that was had his genitals mutilated. He got that wrong. He said it was the blonde kid, and it wasn't. It was uh, um, one of the other two. They were both uh, were brown-headed, and, um, and it was just so unbelievable I mean, and, and impossible. But when you show a jury 200 photographs of three dead carved-up kids, um, they're going to want to punish somebody. Yeah. Do you think and, that's why we talked about this a little bit? Obviously, this case was really hard on you, and you talk a lot about that because, again, it's a memoir. I think it's important for people to realize, like, you're not here trying to necessarily, like, you know. It's not, lay a, out, yes. it's not a retelling of the That's case exactly right. It's your, you're, you're sharing your perspective on what it was like for you. Like, I didn't realize until I read this just how, um, I don't know if you were hated, but people didn't, they thought you were a bad guy. They did. They didn't understand that I was just doing my job. And you weren't um, just doing your job as a crooked lawyer, like, I'm just here to make money. Like, you truly thought, like, this guy, I don't even thought, like, you believed 100%. He's innocent. Well, there was a, a point uh, that my dad came up to me and said, hey, people in town are talking about 
you're being crazy. You need to give up this obsession and move on with your life. And I said, I can't. He's innocent. I promised him. And he said, he's innocent? I said, yes, sir, he is. He said, well, do what you got to do. And um, so I believed firmly that we had a chance to win at the trial court level because we had these issues and we poked a lot of reasonable doubt in the state's case. Um, I genuinely believed we'd win on appeal because of those two issues, the, the failure to advise Mr. and Ms. Kelly. He, was not, he did not have to go to the police station if he didn't want to. And uh, his father was present and could have said no as well. And uh, the officer got amnesia and said he don't re- he didn't remember talking about the, the confession of offering the reward money, and so and then they didn't get the signature of his dad on the Miranda waivers, and the the, the law was crystal crystal clear. So when we file our briefs with the Supreme Court in in 1993, we got Burnett reversed seven to zero. On a on a bench trial case, and uh, so I thought justice was justice, and and it was a, the, the word had meaning, and um, uh, all of a sudden the, the page or the opinion comes out, and they say we didn't raise the two point three issue in a timely fashion. But I had an order from the judge that he considered the motion and the brief and took it into consideration and, and you know, not uh, suppressing the confession. When you look back at these things, like, and there are a lot of... And that's of, why I was angry. That's why... Yeah, I'm that's what I was about to say. Like, so, is it, when you look back at these things, like, you don't think it was just a bunch of accidents right like they were just accidentally messing up this and accidentally forgetting that and oops my bad I didn't mean to do that like I mean you're I mean correct me if I'm wrong but you're kind of under the opinion of like man like they made the decision and there was nothing that anybody could have done to change their mind like they had to hang somebody they Burnett passed the buck and so did the Supreme Court and then they very firmly uh, threw me under the bus because uh, it was my fault for not raising the issue. When I knew damn well I did. Mm-hmm. We filed a motion for rehearing and pointed out the pages in the record where where the motion was, where the brief was, and where the order was, where Judge Burnett said he considered that. And Burnett said, when he called me, uh, he said, you're probably going to get me reversed by the Supreme Court. That's a great brief, uh, but I can't let this kid go. You you understand. And I under, understood what he meant, but I, I didn't like the result. Uh, he said, basically, the rib between the lines is politically, I can't let this kid uh, go. At what point did you know there's nothing I can do like he's going to be proven guilty? I'm a huge optimist, so so I really thought we had a, a shot at the, at trial up until the end, uh, and I thought we were going to win at every stage. Jeez, because I believed in the law and I believed in its majesty, and I believed that that if you followed the rules and 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 did things the way they're supposed to be done, that nobody who's innocent should go to 
jail. And how many hours did you put into it? Oh, gosh. Up, uh, throughout the trial, uh, over 2,000. And um, Judge Burnett had promised us $40 an hour for out-of-court uh, investigation and $60 an hour for in court. And I ended up, my partner and I, we, we split $19 an hour. So, so you, when you get that, when you hear that he's guilty, and I'm trying to remember from the book, it was a, he basically got first, you know, second degree murder for one of the kids. Is that right? For two. Two of the kids. Okay. Were you shocked? Well, you know, there was a small part of me that was very glad that we didn't. Um, uh, yeah, some said it was a victory. Friendly. Yeah. So, um, one of the interesting things is when. Burnett refused to let our experts testify as uh, we did what's called a proffer. And we had the expert testify uh, with the court reporter taking down every word of what he would have testified to had Burnett let him. And after Offshay, Dr. Offshay got done testifying, everybody in the courtroom came up to me and said, you're going to win this case. Uh, that's strong stuff. And I said, yeah, but the jury didn't get to hear that. So um, I walked in the next morning, um, the second day of, I said it wasn't the next morning, but the second day of deliberations. And um, uh, the sheriff said, you, you, I, I think you're going to win this thing. I know the first vote in the jury room was four for acquittal. And uh, I said, how the hell do you know that? And, he said, I ain't going to tell you. I'm, I'm just telling you that's what I what I heard. And um, one night I was teaching my class at ASU, and uh, I was telling the story uh, about 8 to 4, and this kid raised his hand. He said, my, my uncle was the foreman of that jury, and it was 7 to 5. So I had five votes for acquittal. Wow. So... If Burnett hadn't have done the things that he did, we, we would have won right there on the spot. You talk about the drive home, and I'm glad you mentioned that because I had wondered. Like, you just got to see the human side of you of like, um, like you said, you didn't really say anything. Nobody said anything. Nobody said a word, yeah. And then I think you just kind of said it at one point, like you just finally just wept and broke down and was overwhelmed by the situation. Um. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Like, none of us will ever know what that's like. Um, you, because you truly felt this kid was innocent, still feel he's innocent. You did the best you could. You think justice is going to be served. You've put two thousand hours into it. You've, you've, you've sacrificed a lot, right? Relationship with wife, kids, because like, you had to put everything on hold. Like this yeah. was that, right? You're young. Like when you look back at that, like, can you talk about how you think that's impacted you? Like even to this day. Yeah, I, I remember that day very, very vividly. And um, I got home, and I just had this massive emotional release of uh, what I considered to be a failure. Mm -hmm. And, and um, I immediately started going through what could I have done differently, what what you know, what should mm. I have done and how could I have prevented this from happening? And mm. and I questioned 
very long and hard whether I wanted to be a lawyer anymore because I didn't want to be part of a system where truth and justice were just words. You questioned um, a lot, right? You're like, man, I questioned God. I questioned a lot. You questioned a lot of things. I did. I did. And um, um, I basically slept all weekend, and I got up, and I reminded myself um, that I'd made a promise to my client and that uh, I was in for the long haul. I just didn't know how long the haul would be. And um, You continued to fight for him? All the way through. And for those that don't understand, he they, he and uh, Damien and Jason eventually, uh, like I said, for what's called the Alfred plea. Is that right? Yes. And in short, I mean, for the it's in layman's terms, you're basically saying I'm guilty. Still, you can't say I'm innocent, but it's you like, get to count. It's like a tie football game. Everybody, you, you, so, everybody can claim victory. Yeah, you can't. The state didn't lose, and we don't lose, right? State's still right, but we get to go free. It's and, and they don't have to pay reparations to these kids for the 18 years and 78 days that they lost. Mm. So all the bad guys uh, that knew that there was no case, there's no such thing as satanic ritualistic homicide. Yeah. All these um, experts said it was uh, animal predation. On, that was the wounds on the bodies. They knew. All they had to do was say, hey, we made a mistake. Um, we're going to uh, let you go and uh, dismiss the case and – and uh, here's two million for you, two million for you, and two million for you, uh, or whatever. Um, that's the right thing to do. But the, and they just dug in deeper. And the way that it worked out, it gave them cover to hide behind. And some people, there's that small group of people that will always believe that there's no such thing as a false confession and that they did it, um, they'll – Fight you to the end. Yeah. Um, I had one guy from um, Pennsylvania that was harassing me. Um, wasn't threatening me. It came close. Um, but uh, he would send me an email, and it would always say, I'll never contact you again, but then I'd get another one the next day. And he was trying to get me to go on some of these podcasts with these crazy people that think they did it. And I refused. And Basically I, to debate them. Uh, yeah, and I just – actually, I never even responded. So the last one got really close to being th- threat, being a threat, and um, basically I was going to die in hell for representing a child killer. And, yeah. and um, so I called um, my son-in-law, who's an expert at locating people. Um, he's a deputy prosecutor uh, in northwest Arkansas. And um, within 10 minutes, I knew the guy's name, knew his wife's name, where they both worked, where they lived, what their kids' names were, what cars they drove. And um, if I ever hear from him again, I'm just going to send the local police right to his house. Do you think that, um, you know, I had, I think I told you that I had a, someone reach out to me, even about having you on the podcast. That was just kind of like, you should be ashamed of yourself for having him on here. And um, I asked for a a book. I was like, hey, I'm open to either side. I've got no like skin in this game, right? I want to know the truth, you know? So it's not like I'm just like, you know, you and me go way back and I'm like, whatever Dan believes, I believe. It's like, I just 
want to know the truth like anybody else does and like you do, you know, and stand for that. And so I asked this guy, send me a book for another, from, a, from another perspective. And, you know, he sent me an article well, on the always, internet and it's like, I'm curious, like, why do you think, why do you think there's not a lot said from the other side? Like, you know, you don't hear any, I, I've not heard anybody on the prosecuting side or anybody really you said there's a small group that's still like really passionate about like, oh, they're guilty. Uh, but I've not seen much out there, and I've certainly not read anything from somebody only, that works the case. The, no, the, and that's one of the things in Paradise Lost 3. Um, they interviewed Gary Gitchell, or he said in the film, they were doing his deposition in the Natalie Maines Dixie Chicks defamation suit, mm-hmm. and um, uh, Gitchell didn't want to be involved because he didn't want to get sued, and... and uh, But he made the statement, I wish I could sit down with someone and show them the truth so that they'll understand these kids are guilty. So when the reporter from GQ magazine called him so that he could sit down and hear his side of the story, he he wouldn't return the phone call. They always talk about this hidden evidence, um, but but they're sworn that they can't talk about. And uh, so that creates this uh, self-fulfilling prophecy in their regime of truth is we want to be able to hide behind this Alfred plea. So um, my book had several goals. One was to um, uh, tell about what happened with me and, and how I traversed through the case. The second thing was I wanted to completely make it understandable in layman's terms just how bad Jesse Miss Kelly's mental disabilities were. And um, in fact, when I sent the, the, the new uh, report that we'd gotten, I sent the chapter that I wrote to Dr. Durning, who was the psychologist, our post-conviction psychologist, and I said, would you just kind of take a look at this and make sure I haven't misquoted you or done anything? You know, I, I don't want to misquote you or say anything that's not true. And and a couple of days later, he texted me or emailed me back and said, um, he said, no, it's perfect. Everything in there is exactly right. He said, but why are you so pissed off? And I said, what do you mean? He says, just the tone is so, you're, you're pissed off. And, and I didn't see it, but he did. And so... I had to go back and start mm-hmm. realizing that even though I had the right to be pissed off, I couldn't tell it from that perspective because nobody would believe it. They would think I was just, you know, trying to uh, tilt at windmills and, instead of telling what really happened. But everything that's in that book, uh, I can prove. I have the documentation. Um, and uh, if someone wouldn't talk to me on the record, um because they didn't want to get involved in um, uh, making the good old boy network uh, lose their minds. Um, I wrote that this is what I was told, and I don't know if it's true or not, but if it is, it reinforces this or that. Yeah. And so I was very careful to make sure that everything uh, was reviewed. I had several lawyers review it and uh, they said it was fine and um 
uh, and I'm a lawyer, but I don't need to give myself legal <laughs> advice, uh, especially if I was kind of angry. But but um, at the end of the book, I, I kind of go through this metamorphosis of um, um, it was eating away at my soul. It really was. I was struggling. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, the death of my child and uh, the death of my wife's second oldest as well. We were both in grief and um, uh, dealing with it. She de- she deals with it a lot differently than I did, mm-hmm. and we couldn't understand why we weren't doing it the same. And uh, everybody grieves differently, mm-hmm. but I was struggling with um, how do I, you know, I I deserve to win this case in the courtroom now with this Mickey Mouse Alfred plea, but I had nothing to do with. And once I went back and examined all the complexities of who agreed to it, who acquiesced to it, um, who said this, who said that, it all began to make sense. Mm -hmm. And um, the new prosecutor, Scott Ellington, uh, had just been elected. And Damien had a new lawyer, uh, Stephen Braga from uh, D.C. And they were the architects of the, the plea. But like you said earlier, you don't have any skin in the game. Uh, neither did they. Um, Ellington was looking down the barrel of, um, I've got to try three separate murder cases with uh, witnesses who are now deceased, witnesses uh, who won't be able to be found. And he was quoted as saying this uh, spooky witchcraft thing or something to that extent uh, wasn't going to work again. Mm. And so he wanted it to go away. He called it like eating a maggot sandwich. He said, uh, when you got to eat a maggot sandwich, you, you don't take it bite by bite. You just eat it. Mm-hmm. And um, and um, Braga, uh, his theory was, you know, my client's been on death row for over 18 years. Um, why don't we plead guilty while maintaining our innocence? And everybody mm-hmm. can say they won. Yeah. And, um, but I didn't want any of that, uh, halfway one stuff. Uh, you wanted to, I, I, I wanted, yeah. uh, I wanted redemption for what they did to me, what they, the times they threw me under the bus when I was right and they were wrong. And, um, um, it's just, uh, I, you know, I, I had all these dreams of grandeur of uh, walking into the Coliseum as, as, um, uh, with my sword as Russell Crowe and yeah. uh, uh, taking the heads off some, some of these people. That's how angry I was. And um, um, it was metaphorically, of course. Sure, sure. But um, it, it, that's how I dreamed this would end. And I would retire from the bench immediately to try that case again. Um, mm. Just to set at council table, uh, I would – I would retire. You think we'll ever know the truth? I hope so. You know, there's so many people who have passed. Um, just assuming um, that the real killer was my age. Uh, I'm 60 now. Um, turned 60 this, this past March. So if he was 40, he'd be 70. What would you – you look back at this, and I want to be able to let you get to your book signing, like – 
after writing this book and reflecting on all of this, and you've spent a lot of time thinking about it, if you could go back and say anything to your 30-year-old self, what would you say? He did the best he could. And you should be proud of your perseverance and holding down the, the ship and until the, the heroes arrived. If I hadn't filed those pro se Rule 37 petitions, uh, then they would have never happened. And Jesse and Jason uh, and Damien most likely would still be in jail. So, uh, are I you s- able to believe that on most days? That you can you can you get to that place now where you have that piece of like I really did the best that I could I, and I was helpful. And- I did, and and um, you know I get mail from all over the world and people from all over the world are buying these books. They're on sale and on Amazon in um, the UK and Canada, Germany, France, Italy. And we'll include a link to those, by the and way, in your bio and in, description of the podcast. In Japan, of all places. Um, so, wow. um, but this, It's drawn a lot of interest. It's drawn a lot of interest, and it's never once been out of the headlines for 30 years. Mm-hmm. So, um, And it doesn't sound like it's going away anytime soon, with the evidence now being discovered that it's still there, that it's not been burned in the fire like they thought. And I know Damien, I saw a recent interview with him where he's trying to raise funds because apparently to get new DNA testing. Which is fascinating to me because I'm like, if this guy's guilty, he's got a lot of stupidity or courage or something to be like, hey, let's test this stuff again just so hopefully someday I can prove I am innocent once and for all. He's he's not uh, guilty. Neither None of them are. And uh, I wouldn't spend 30 years of my life trying to uh, represent people who are guilty of killing three eight-year-old kids. I've got better things to do with my life than that. But um, uh, I knew they weren't. And um, so, it, yeah, it was an obsession, and my marriage didn't make through that. Um, my kids probably didn't understand at the time, where's dad? I come he's not at my football game or baseball game or whatever. But um, they, they know that I was working on something important. And uh, I... Uh, to a T, all of them uh, understand that, yeah. and to, um, especially Chris, the son I lost, um, uh, he uh, couldn't wait for the book to come out, and I'm <laughs> really disappointed he didn't get a chance to see it. And um, I took a copy to my mother the other night. Uh, she's been excited about reading it, and the print was too small, so she. <laughs> I don't know how we're going to get that done. Uh, it's a magnifying glass. I, I guess so, but um, she's in poor health, and my dad is um, he's got lymphoma, but he's in remission and doing well. Um, so, well, I'm we, glad that you spent the years and the time to, to get this out there. I talked with one guy uh, that said he read it an entire day because he couldn't put it down, and I know a lot of other people. I mean, I'm glad you're getting the feedback that you're getting. I'm to let you get to the signing. What One last question I have is um, you said that you had some goals, obviously, when you set out and you wrote this book. Like, what If there was one thing that you hope people take away from it, what would that be? To understand the fact that there is uh, such a phenomenon as false confessions, and they're real, and uh, it all depends on how the conduct of the police are. If they use the read method, which is uh, common, uh, if you read the book on the read method of interrogation, it says in the front of the book, 
if you follow this guideline, you will get a confession. But it doesn't say you'll get a real confession. It just says you'll get a confession. And if you watch a lot of the true crime stuff on TV, my wife's addicted to it. She watches it all the time. Um, and that's how I got to my suspect because I was walking through the room one night. She was asleep snoring, and uh, um, forensic files came on. I felt my attention uh, because this woman was asked to identify her child, uh, the skeletal remains, and she said, that's not my kid's pajamas. And so it was uh, a dump site. Huh. And um, so the more I learned about that guy, I can place him in West Memphis killing a prostitute the year before. So um, I got some work to do. Um, so You're not, Your work's not done. My work is not done. And uh, I, I believe it was an over-road uh, truck driver. I can't remember you saying that on the on the podcast. It's the perfect job for a serial killer when you think about it. You pull into a ten acre uh, gas station restaurant, uh, and you sleep back there in the back, right next to the woods where these kids were, and and um, those bindings, the shoelaces, left uh, wrist to left uh, ankle and right wrist to right ankle. If, if he was trying to keep them from running away, all they had to do was like handcuffs, just reach under, and you're fully mobile. Um, those weren't uh, restraints. They were um, carrying handles. Mm-hmm. So I picked two up at a time, mm-hmm. dumped them in the ditch, and then went back and got the third one, got in his rig, and was six states away before they found the bodies. When you say truck driver, you mean like just A, or is there like one specific that you have your mind and your sights on? Well, the person who's my suspect is, you know, was an over-the-road truck driver. Still alive? Doing life. Yeah, he's in prison. Oh, you say he's in life. Okay. Yeah. Um, I remember you saying that now. He um, is unique in that most serial killers have a – an M.O., the type of person that they are stalking, uh, blondes, brunettes, uh, green eyes, blue eyes, uh, whatever the case. But very rarely uh, do you see one who has across the spectrum, it doesn't matter, uh, men, women, girls, boys, uh, teenagers, um, and um, um, the local police won't cooperate with me. Um, so I had to go around their back and do some intel, um, but I got what I needed. So eventually to catch them on like that, you have to try to basically match DNA, right? That's how we're going to do it these days. I mean, it's like, that's why I'm hoping Damien's, um, petition works. Why is that so difficult by the way? Like when you got got Peter Jackson and all them backing you, like how much money are we talking about that you have to, because apparently it's very expensive to do these tests. It is. Um, and, um, I don't know the exact amount, but it's, it's very expensive. Um, um, I would say, you know, probably 50000 at least for each yeah, that's item That's like nothing tested. for some people, right? Uh, yeah. Drop $50,000 just to test just to test that <laughs> DNA. <laughs> he wouldn't have any problem raising the money, but we just got to get access to it. The problem is the Alfred plea was the end of the case. It was the finality of it. 
And the statute, the DNA statute in Arkansas says if you are in prison, you have access to DNA testing. But Wow. So, like, if this stuff would have came out while they were still in prison, if we'd found out, oh, the evidence wasn't destroyed, if we'd found out the evidence was not destroyed, because we thought it was, right? The evidence back in in 20, it started coming out in 2007, and then it still Still took uh, 2011 before they got out, but uh, but I mean um, the evidence that we that, that it was, was just available, recently discovered. It was available then, but the technology that we have we didn't now, have right exactly. So yeah, technology keeps accelerating. Yes. Um, so um, I can see both sides of the argument, um, but um, what I don't understand is why not let him test it. I'm not awesome. Well, we're getting the cue over here that it's time for you to sign books. Well, so um, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for writing the book, sharing your heart. Uh, I look forward to finishing it. Like I said, I'm only halfway through. And so for those of you who are listening to this, if you want to pick up your copy, we're having a book signing on the, on December 9th at, uh, up the street here at uh, Weber's Bookhouse. House. Right, we'll include that in there. I'll have books available for sale there. Perfect. I've got some ordered, uh, so great. Uh, they should be here in a few days. So, Excellent. So, uh, well, thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on, Dan. Appreciate it, man. All right, thank you. All right, Judge Dan Sidham has not left the building. <laughs> He's one of the. What few. I usually say. He's in there, busy, signing books. How many people we had waiting? Like twenty people out there waiting for him. Yeah. I mean, a lot. Um, he's a popular guy. Another opportunity to have his book signed coming up at Weber's Bookhouse December 9th, yep. I believe. Yep, and I would imagine he'll get a big turnout for that. It's, it's. I mean, this is a world-famous case. It's yeah. crazy that we have someone living right here in Paragould who was so intimately involved in all the details of it. And so, um, Judge Dan Siddham, thank you so much for the work that you have uh, put in and finishing this book, kind of uh, a memoir, as he said, that gives us your perspective of what it was like to work a case um, of that magnitude. And for those of you who are still listening, thanks so much for tuning in. Um, If you've not done so, go check us out on different social media platforms. We're on Facebook and Instagram primarily. Um, And if you will just do this, it'd be great. Take 30 seconds, 45 seconds, whatever it is, and whatever platform you're listening to us on, whether it be Apple or Spotify, um, go and give us a five-star rating if you can. That just helps people to um, find us more quickly and learn about the incredible people that are living right here in this community. So as always, thanks so much for listening. Until next time.